Thanks. You know, the most... Uh, really quick. What did you forget? Well, I know that you're running out of time. and Actually, you got plenty of time. You're still golden. Is this a nice sweater? Just thought I'd want to give you some props. He was so proud of it, he spent like three minutes office this morning telling me about it, and I just wanted to make sure you got some props for it. It's good looking. All you right. know, didn't we agree that my office is like Las Vegas? What <laughs> happens in there stays in there. That's right. Because if you want me to share everything that I've heard while you and I were talking in there, I can do it right now. <laughs> and it was an accident. Somebody said, hey, you've got Niners colors on, and I do, but I didn't mean to. Wouldn't it have been cool if I'd have accidentally worn some tan slacks today? That would have been so nice. All right. So in honor of my dear brother Rob, I'm pulling for New England today. And of course, you know, I mean, if you're not rooting for the Niners, I'm a, I'm a converted Rams fan, and I'm rooting for the Niners today. And my son Josh is also a converted Rams fan. And we agreed... Okay, his nickname for me is Squash. I call him Squash. So, uh, I mean, it's Squash, and then our daughter is Sweets, and our son David, whom you've known here as worship leaders, his family nickname is Scudder, ever since they were born. So I said, Squash, if the Niners get into the Super Bowl, we're going down to buy jerseys. Is it agreed? He says, it's agreed. So we're hoping that we can go spend some money. Before I get going uh, too much... uh, further down the road in this. I want to remind you that on the back table, we bought 80 of these, uh, $2 a piece. While we're talking in this series on theology and Theology Matters, we thought it would be good to encourage as many as we can, at least 80 of you, uh, to be reading The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, who every once in a while, you're gonna, if you're reading this book, you're going to hear a prayer that he wrote or a little something maybe in one of the messages uh, from Tozer. But this is brilliant stuff. One of the greatest um, theological minds of modern history. They're two dollars a piece. I prepaid for them, so I paid it forward for you. So I'd love to get reimbursed. So go ahead and pick one of these up at the back table, right back there, and just leave two dollars in the box. Take one home and read it and enjoy it. It'd be a fun read. Well, it's not a fun read, but it's a profound read uh, for you if you want to do it as couples or a family as well. The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Pardon me? They have all the pages in them, yes. That's a reference to <laughs> reference to Pastor Jeff, who was ripping pages out of the Bible last week, right up here in front of everybody. That's uh, <clears throat> a good, it's a good, do they have all the pages? You still haven't forgiven me. My point is made again this week. Let's pray. God, already we've sensed your presence here, and we shouldn't be surprised by it because we ask for it. We ask you to blow through your people gathered in such a way that we feel the warmth of the wind and the presence of the Spirit of God, that we've come away from here refreshed in response to a week of living your principles of Busying ourselves with loving like you loved, of confronting and facing down our fears, of saying no to things that are sadly natural to us and yes to things that must be learned in the way we, in the way we live in our community. And we come here deeply in need of refreshment, of encouragement, 
and that comes from your presence. So we've already sensed your presence, at least I have. And now we ask God that you would take of your inspired word and guard against misunderstanding, miscommunication, maybe even misinterpretation that gives rise to the miscommunication. But all of us together, even though I'm doing most of the talking here, all of us together are learners as we trust you to teach us. So would you quicken our minds, Lord, so that we never become members of that group that just sits and listens and believes everything it hears thoughtlessly. Would you keep speaking through me, through the teachers that are teaching in various places on this campus, and through us as we listen discern and apply in the name of Christ. Amen. There's a man who's a popular conservative columnist. He's, a, he's been a speech writer for presidents, a graduate, I believe, of Harvard, business, um, Harvard School of Medicine. He's a physician. And many of you have heard Charles uh, Krauthammer and read him. And from uh, his 2012 New Year's editorial, I begin this morning with an excerpt that I found to be interesting. It said, As the romance of manned space exploration has waned, the drive today is to find our living, thinking counterparts in the universe. For all the excitement over current discoveries and Earth-like planets, he, said, he writes, however, the search betrays a profound melancholy, a lonely species in a merciless universe anxiously awaits an answering voice amid utter silence. You want to read that to be uplifted. So according to Crowdhammer anyway, we are a profoundly melancholy lonely species living in a merciless universe searching for a voice of hope that comes from outside of our known world. Now, in all fairness to that article, that's sort of the picture he's creating. What he's going to go on to argue, I just want to be fair to the article and not rip it too far out of its context. He's going to go on to argue that for the for the value, that that's not going to happen, it's not happening because he's saying that ultimately uh, intelligent beings are... Uh, co-opted by their own intelligence to destroy themselves. They're, they're, the, seek, the, the results of intelligence ultimately uh, brings destruction to super-intelligent beings. And he's arguing in that article that the hope for humankind is uh, a sound and reasonable politics. So politics has as its responsibility, among other things, protect us from the negative outcomes of our own intelligence. But that quote still was pounding at me as I read it. A friend of mine sent it to me this week. And it reminded me of another quote that is maybe more well-known, well, certainly more well-known. In fact, it's become sort of secondary scripture uh, for many of us. Well, one of the great thinkers of history, a 17th century thinker who was also a Christ follower, said... There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being which cannot be fulfilled by any created thing. Blaise Pascal, 
all of us have this God-shaped vacuum in us, this, this half magnet, and the other half is God, and there's something in us that's looking for something outside of us to rescue us. That's what Pascal is saying. So both Krauthammer and Pascal are referring to an express need for humanity to be rescued from a force outside of itself. And of course, as I've already said, Krauthammer goes on beyond that. But that's sort of the foundation for his argument, at least as in terms of an illustration. And suspiciously, he concludes that politics is what gives us the best chance for that rescue. Now, I don't think for a moment that that's all this great mind thinks about the subject. We're just judging him, or I'm just using him from one article. Pascal argues that humanity's only hope for rescue comes from and through Jesus. And as different as these two men's positions are, both the 21st century Krauthammer and the 17th century Pascal believe that human, humanity needs a protector. As different as they are, they both believe that. They're both looking for something from outside of ourselves to protect us or rescue us or keep us. A rescuer, a redeemer. That unless somehow humanity is rescued or redeemed or saved, whether it be by a solid politic, humanity sort of organizing in such a way that it can save itself from itself, or from a force outside of itself, as Pascal would say, by God. They're both saying that unless something happens, unless there's some intervention someplace, uh, humanity will destroy itself and be cursed by its own intelligence. For instance, uh, the, by that they mean to say, for instance, we're smart enough to figure out how to create weaponry that we don't know how to control, and then because of human intelligence and the scientific ability to create weapons of mass destruction, for instance, now the big concern isn't will rational thinking nations control themselves with the use of that. Now the concern is what happens when non-rational thinking people get their hands on all of that? And eventually, you see where we have the... Are you excited and encouraged yet this morning? <laughs> But both are saying, as others have said, unless something happens, unless there is some redemption someplace, whether it's literally literal destruction or spiritual destruction, whatever version, humanity really is in a bad way. And that introduces us to our big word this morning. We're in this series, Big Words, Theology matters, big words that make a big difference. And we have another ology word today. The big word for today is soteriology. And just as a way of reminder, the hope is we're going to kind of define it and think about it a little bit, but then get to the place where we say, so what? How does that big word make a big difference? So we want for this to be more than a, than a lesson, but something that inspires the heart and encourages as well. The first section has to do with this big word, soteriology. Let's look at it a little bit, and then we'll look at how it makes a difference. It comes from the uh, Greek word that means to save. In the verbal form, it's sozo, the nounal form, a soter, savior, rescuer. I define it this way. Soteriology is the study of the mechanics of religious salvation. 
As theologians use the word soteriology, they're studying what, what's behind, what's in the process of this rescue that most philosophers, whether Christian or not, know must happen. It's the study of how a person is transitioned from, now to use scriptural language, a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's Bible language. Focusing, but not focusing on but not restricted to the activity of God in that process. So that's sort of the heady, heavy definition of what we mean by soteriology. To put it in old school TV preacher language, it's the study of how somebody gets genuinely saved. But there's much more to this study than that language might imply. Some examples of this use. Remember, we, I said last week that the scriptures were written by people, but they came from God. When the scriptures were written by people, and as God was employing people to communicate his message and get it written down, they had... They used a language that was available to them at the time. So there was a, a field of meaning that the common culture, the community would use when, uh, to convey things. They would use certain words, and there was a field of meaning that they would all agree upon. And the scripture writers pulled from those very same, pulled, used those very same words in the context of that very same field of meaning. So to look at some of the examples of the way this word was used is very helpful. Uh, in Matthew 8, you have the reference, for instance, this isn't the only time, not even close to the only time uh, this verb shows up in the New Testament, but here's a good example of it. You have the example of the storm happening, and what do the apostles who are with Jesus in the boat during the storm yell out? They yell out, Master, while the storm's, are, storm's raging and the waves are you know, coming over the top of the boat and they think they're going to sink, they yell out, Master, Save us, sozo us, rescue us uh, in extra-biblical literature. So this is literature that was out there about the same time the Bible was written. Letters, legal documents. Scholars can look at scriptural words and then they can look at the way those particular words tended to be used at the same time scripture was written and get a sense for what, it helps us to get a sense for what the Bible writers might have meant by it. And some extra-biblical Liter uh, literature, you have the word used to uh, as sort of pre preserve or protect or keep safe. You have one reference uh, of a letter that was written to an authority that was going to be visited by some friends, and the letter said, "Hey, save yourself for us because we're coming to we're coming to visit you soon. Save some of your energy. Energy. Don't expend everything. Save a little something for us." You have pretty broad uh, range of usage for the word. In the nounal form, again, preserver, savior, rescuer, they're all synonyms that could be used in Scripture. In extra-biblical Scripture, you, you have the, the noun form of the word from which we get this big word, soteriology, um, used to refer to an emperor or a, a prefect as the saver or protector or preserver, for instance, of personal rights. I'm coming to you, governor, and I'm pleading with you as my savior for justice. You're the one who makes sure, protects everybody's right to have a fair hearing. You have that sense of this word from which we get our word, savior or save, and the big word, 
soteriology. So just a quick definition and some examples of how the word was used, but let's get into the essence of the study. If we boil it down uh, to its simplest and most important points, what do we mean by soteriology, this big, fancy theology word? I'd put it this way. The first thing we need to remember is that it means this. It means that God sees creation's predicament. We're going to focus on God's activity in understanding this, but God sees creation's predicament. God always has seen, he foresaw, he sees now creation's predicament. He is a parent who loves the children he created, that he sired. And he watches them, he stays aware of them, and he's aware of their ache, their successes, their joys, their celebrations, their stumbles, and their falls. We all try to stay aware of all of that, those of us who have children. We can't, and maybe we don't want to know everything that they experience. But we try, and God is aware, he sees creation's predicament. And here's what he sees when he sees creation's predicament. Scripture's pretty clear on this. In Romans 3, you have Paul reminding us of what God sees when he sees creation's predicament. That all have sinned and fall short of the perfection that God longs for us to experience. All have sinned. There's nobody left out. And he sees that in Romans 6, the consequences, the results, or the scripture says the wages, what you earn from sin is death, separation from God. And that's what God sees. Soteriology reminds us that God is aware. God sees creation's predicament. He sees it even when we don't see it. He sees that we can't rescue ourselves. Any doubt of that fact? I mean, just just think about recent history and time after time after time after time. Humanity just gets itself in a mess and it can't seem to get itself out. Temporarily, maybe, but not for good. Isn't that right? I mean, just watch the news for a while. And you shake your head. Just look at your own heart and some of the decisions that we still keep making, even though we know they're not the best decisions in the world, cannot rescue ourselves. We need some help. Becca and I, our daughter Becca and I, a few years back, she went on a ministry trip with me down to Los Angeles and we had some extra time and so I said let's go see some stuff down here and what do you want to go see and she just was her as an adult this was just a handful of years ago she said I want to see the Labria tar pits and I said okay we'll go see the tar pits and we went to the tar pits and it was a pretty interesting uh, trip actually very educational and you see what happened these beautiful strong magnificent animals unaware that that's not solid ground, that's a tar pit, walk out to get whatever, and they get stuck there. And they didn't just get stuck there and then die, they try to get out. And the more they try to get out, the deeper they were buried in the tar. You know the scenario. And you even have um, animals that were prey to predators, and you have the animal, say, uh, I don't know, a, a woolly beast or whatever, and then you have a, uh, a predator right next to it in the same tar pit because the predator would even see, oh, dinner, and he can't move. Ah, easy. Jumps to start eating and also gets caught in the the tar pit and we get to see the remnants of that. Humanity, here's what God sees. God sees humanity 
experiencing the same thing. It looks like those animals. And part of the study of soteriology is to recognize that God sees the predicament. He sees us as stuck. And he must appreciate us trying to get unstuck. But he also sees the fact that the more unstuck we try to make ourselves in our own strength, the more stuck we get. So that's the first thing to recognize in soteriology. And remember, God sees creation's predicament. The second is this. God doesn't just sit passively by and say, oh, gee, that's too bad. What a bummer. No, it's the study of the rescuer, the savior of the world, rescuer of the world. God not only sees creation's predicament, God takes initiative to make a way of escape, even from the deepest pit. He sees, and his heart is broken, torn, crumbling almost by what he sees. And in Philippians 2, we're told that God saw, and he didn't just sit back. He took initiative. He came. He took on the form of a human being, the form of a servant, in order to come and walk in the tar with us. I'm not going to sit back. I'm going to go to you. I'm going to come to you. He sees and he takes initiative. So Teriology remembers that. My dad, uh, I remember when I was told which high school I would go to. I was in junior high. I don't think my dad liked the direction I was going. Or the, uh, he saw the kind of relationships I was building. And I was being a normal adolescent trying to prove that I was cool. And you do that by who you connect with. I don't think that's ever going to change. And so my dad saw that, and he, I know what he did. He sat and he thought, he said, now how can I take initiative to change the trajectory of that kid's life? Because uh, I, I don't, you seen that commercial? Don't have a grandchild with a dog collar on. Don't, well, whatever it was. Don't let your internet be slow or something. Like that. Make all these logical connections. My dad said, I don't want to have a grandchild with a dog collar. <laughs> and so what my dad did was one day we were driving someplace. I still remember this. I don't remember everything leading up to it, but he said, uh, in my eighth grade year, uh, what do you think of Archbishop Mitty High School? I said, never heard of it, but I'm going to Bookser, which is now Santa Clara High School, and you don't need to know all that. Good, because what do you think of it? Oh, that'd be cool. It's all boys. Okay. <clears throat> Dress code, you can't have sideburns longer than halfway down your ear. Not a problem for me, because it wasn't an option. Uh, only shirts with a collar on them, no patch pockets on your pants. You have to wear hard shoes, you have to... Uh, it doesn't sound so much fun, but he goes, well, get used to it because that's where you're going. I was introduced to many, my dad took initiative. Now, it turns out that was a great decision on his part. I mean, he could have done something really mean to me, like sent me to St. Ignatius or Sarah or Reardon or, you know, someplace like that. But instead, I went to the best of all, still true, the best of all the Catholic high schools in the Bay Area, Archbishop Mitty Memorial High School. I became a monarch because we're the, we're the monarchs. The point was this. My dad didn't sit back passively. My dad became soter. My dad practiced soteriology. My dad saw my predicament and took initiative on my behalf. And soteriology studies the fact that God is seeing the human predicament, taking initiative in response to our stuckness. And thirdly, God offers us the option for a different life. I see it. 
You can't get out of that tar. I'm coming. And I'm connecting with you. And I'm going to experience everything you experience. That's God in His Son Jesus Christ coming to earth and living the life we are trying to live. And then He offers an option for a different life. There's that text that we've been hearing so much about the last few weeks. John 3.16 God loved the world in spite of what He saw dripping with tar and getting deeper and deeper with every attempt to get out. He loved His creation so much that He took initiative and He sent His Son that whoever then would choose to align themselves with His Son would not have death as is the consequence of being that stuck but have a chance for eternal life like the eternal life you shared with us that you found. God took initiative and then he offered an option for a different life. John 10.10 says, he says he, he, he came that we might have life in abundance. And that text is offered in contrast, as you remember. He says, a thief comes to only kill and steal and destroy, to spread the tar and then make sure you get stuck in it, having been lured in by him. But in strong contrast to that, I came for just the opposite reason, you see, that you might have life. And I don't mean the kind of life where you just get to keep breathing. Abundant life, full life, rich life, purposeful life, rescued life. This is like uh, when, I don't know that they still do this, but in, in ballroom dancing, you could be dancing and there, you, there are a bunch of people that want to dance and then somebody can come and what do they do if they want to break in? Tap you on the shoulder. And you're dancing with someone and then somebody comes up, that's a good dancer, and taps your partner on the shoulder and says, may I? And uh, so you have, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I've heard anybody say absolutely not, but you, you're, you have to kind of step back and somebody comes in. You know what this is like, this offer that God gives us? It's like, we're dancing with somebody who steps on our feet, kicks us in the shins. We keep tripping over each other's feet, trying to dance, and we're doing the best we can with this music. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes in, taps him on the shoulder, and they leave, and somebody comes and replaces them. And they are dancing beautifully. We're in step. This fits. This works. God sees creation's predicament, the Scripture tells us. He takes initiative and then he gives us an offer for a better dance. This is the ultimate opportunity to change partners. To rearrange everything. Do not have your feet stepped on anymore. Or probably more honestly to quit stepping on your own feet. Fourthly, so God sees, God takes initiative, God offers. And the fourth and last point in this study of soteriology is after God offers it seems that the scriptures are showing us that he waits hopes and encourages us to follow him it's kind of like if he taps someone on the shoulder and they leave there's this moment in time where you haven't embraced yet but it's like he's saying um, may I We'll dance like you've never danced before, trust me. 
but may I? And he waits, and he hopes, and he encourages. Come on, let's dance. How long are you going to dance with a partner that can't dance? Come dance with me. And he waits. Some people complain about him waiting. Man, oh man. I wish he just put the, pushed the button already. Let's get this thing done. I got mine. Let's get this over with. Peter addresses that in 2 Peter 3. He said, God is not slow as some consider slowness. It's not like God just kind of getting bogged down in all of the details of history. God's waiting and hoping and encouraging, Peter says. He's just not willing that anybody should perish. He's not willing that anybody have a bad dance partner. He's not willing that anybody stay stuck in the tar. And he's, it seems as though he's slowing down the historical clock so more people can have a chance to see clearly and respond to his offer for a different life. We were giving Brenda a surprise party once, my wife Brenda a surprise party once in Colorado, and I thought I had everything all organized, I had everybody show up at the church, and we were having this big birthday party, except uncharacteristically she was early and she was ready. Oh boy, she'd come to second gathering. That's our secret that I said that, okay. She was early and on target, probably because she, she knows that's important to me and it's her birthday and we're going out to dinner or whatever. I had to actually slow her down and make sure that we didn't get to the party ahead of all the guests. But I was slowing her down not to ruin her evening. I was slowing everything down to enhance her experience in the evening. Does that make sense? And there's God. I want to dance with you. Will you dance with me? Oh, will we ever dance the dance you've dreamt of? We'll dance the dance. But hold out your arms and ask me to come to you. He sees. He takes initiative. He offers an option for abundant life. And then he hopes, he waits, he encourages for us, asking us to receive him. That's what the big word means. That's what the big word soteriology talks about. But that big word makes a big difference. And here are some of the takeaways that I think would be helpful for us today. First one, the big difference. If God sees all of creation's predicament, you can be sure that he's aware of your predicament. It's going from uh, the large to the small, from the macro to the micro, because you're part of all of creation. And sometimes that's pretty encouraging. I mean, are, are, you, do you, are you so busy seeing everybody else that you don't see what I'm dealing with right now? Nope. If God sees all of creation's predicament, you can be absolutely certain that he's aware of yours too. Remember that great song, who was it, Mahalia Jackson? I don't remember who introduced it first, but his eye is on the sparrow. So I know he what? Watches me. That's not scripture, but it's scripture. I mean, the scripture even says, God can count the numbers of hairs on your head. He, he, it doesn't even tax him. And if that's true, oh my, my word, 
he, he must be aware of me then. Because he's a, if he's aware of the number of hairs I have on my head, and that keeps changing every year, and he's aware of what I'm going through, he's aware of my life. That's a great takeaway. God sees all of creation's predicament. You can be sure that he's aware of yours too. Second takeaway. If God takes such sacrificial initiative, then every one of us must be incredibly precious to him. See, we have to hear that over and over and over again because just about every minute of our lives where the opposite is either told to us or implied. You're not good enough. You're not up to standard. You haven't accomplished this. You're a bum and you're always going to be a bum. Even when it's direct like that. Sometimes it's not so direct. Isn't it true logically? No one pays a high price for what isn't highly valued. Right? You don't just go out and pay top dollar for something that you don't value. And if God paid such a high price, took such sacrificial initiative, then every one of us is precious to him. And that hairs on your head text even teaches that. Third takeaway. If God is offering and waiting, then becoming a Christian involves a decision I make in response to that invitation. That's an important thing to remember. Becoming a Christian, and I'll even add, and then living like a Christian. Living out what you have just yielded to. Takes a decision. Jesus says, may I cut in? And you have to say, yes, no, or maybe later. But it's important to remember becoming a follower of Jesus is a choice. And then I'll add to that for those of us who'd say, yeah, I've done that and I, I haven't backed down on that. Living into what we claim to believe in the way we treat others, in the way we relate, even to those with whom we might have strong disagreement, uh, in the way we contribute to our community, uh, is a series of decisions, isn't it? It's all about choices. John 1 says, Jesus came to his own, to his chosen people, and for the most part, they rejected him. But as many as choose to do the opposite of that, as many as received him, come, all right, come on, dance with me. He gave the right to become children of God. That, does, that involves a decision. And folks, everybody has to make a decision. Fourth takeaway, and this is the last one, and then I'm going to give you, a, we're going to pray together, and then I'm going to dismiss you. If God is slowing down history's clock, hoping people will accept his offer of rescue and encouraging us to wait no longer, as, by the way, is the case, because here we are right now, you're hearing this, don't we at least owe him a thoughtful response? I think the answer is yes. And, and that thoughtful response can take many forms. A valid response is, as I've already stated, I'm absolutely certain that I've thought through this and do not believe it, and the people might be nice, and it's cool to have donut holes and everything, but I'm not in. And, I, and I'm thoughtfully not in. I think that's a fair response. I don't buy it. I'm not in. If that's your response to the study of soteriology and all that it implies, even if you're not in, I hope you'll give us the privilege of staying connected. 
we, this, this church seeks and works really hard at loving and even learning from people with whom we might have significant disagreement. Another response, and maybe we have a bunch of people here, I'm not sure, but I will commit myself to being open to God's offer. I'm not quite sure I can say, yes, I'm ready to join in baptism next gathering. But I am sure that I will say there's something going on that I don't understand yet. And I will commit myself to a prayer that sounds something like, God, I'm open. Teach me. But I'm not a follower of Christ yet. But I'm open. Or you may say, I've been considering this, and I've considered it long enough. I now know in the deepest recesses of my heart, I believe this stuff. I believe at least the core of it. I believe Jesus was here, I believe he got it right, and I believe what he said was true, and I need to respond to him, and I want to follow him. I want to, I'd like to have forgiveness and a reconciliation with my creator, and I want to pattern my life after the life of Jesus in the community of Christ's followers. Now we can say it much more simply than that, but that's a legitimate response. I've considered it in my gut. I know it's true, and I want in, even before I understand all about it. And then maybe the majority of us would respond like this. I am once again deeply aware of what God has done for me and us. And I reappreciate the rescuing. Not going to take it for granted anymore. I want to give you a chance pray in response to those four options. My friend John Nodhelfer wrote me, or wrote a note to some of us that he stays in touch with. And in the middle of that note, it's a quote from him, where he said, we are still here as a human race, as uniquely endowed, created in God's image. And our creator, God, is still alive and well. His redemptive interventions in the affairs of his fallen creation are still our great and sustaining hope. His redemptive, from outside of us, interventions to the creation that he sees as broken and stuck are still our sustaining hope. Joshua must have thought something like that when he challenged the people who were following him Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I think you deserve a chance to choose. Would you stand?